Let me read once more the words which are found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 11, reading from verse 25 to verse 32. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Now, we've divided that tremendous statement into two main subdivisions. The first one is verses 25, 26, and 27, where the great apostle puts before us this prophecy that he makes as an apostle. God has given him a revelation with regard to this matter of the future conversion of Israel. And he states that explicitly and plainly. States when it's going to take place and so on. And then, having done that, he confirms it with his quotations from the Old Testament scriptures, which are to be found in the second part of verse 26 and the whole of verse 27. Now, we've dealt with that. So we come now to this second uh, section or subdivision of this uh, tremendous statement. And this is the one that uh, runs from the beginning of verse 28 to the end of verse 32. Here again, if you like, you can subdivide it. Verses 28 and 29, the apostle is laying down the principle on which all that he's been saying is going to operate and why it's going to come to pass. And then in verses uh, 30 and 31, he uh, just explains it in practical terms. And in verse 32, he again sums it all up in a great overriding principle which governs the whole of God's dealings with the human race. Now then, we are looking at this section, and uh, it's a very important one because it does give us an explanation of what the Apostle has just been saying. It is, if you like, his comment upon what he has been saying. This is quite a common way of procedure on his part. He makes a great statement, and then because he was such a teacher and a pastor, and so concerned that people should grasp the truth and understand it, he brings it down more to their level by expanding it and explaining it and making it clear to them. Very well, then. He does that, I say, in these verses. But in addition to that, I think we shall see that in these verses he is also really summing up the argument of the whole of the chapter. He's made his statement now, and he's just, as is again his custom, summing it all up. 
you'll find, as I'm going to show you, that he makes references to things that he said earlier in the chapter. This, this is his method. And this is a very great illustration of it, this 11th chapter of this epistle to the Romans. He makes a statement, works it out in detail, sums it up, then having made a long statement, he'll sum the whole thing up. I've used the comparison before, and I think it's a, a good one and a just one. He, he always reminds me of, of a Beethoven symphony. He, he has his kind of introduction in which he throws out his themes. He then deals with his separate themes, but he always gathers them up to some great and grand climax at the end. And that's what he does here. And then, of course, he rounds it all off with this glorious doxology, which is found in verses 33 to 36. However, we are still dealing with this particular section. You see, I'm reminding you what he's doing here. He's explaining what he's just been saying. But over and above that, he's summing up the whole argument of the entire chapter. And, uh, if I may say so, he at the same time throws very interesting light upon the interpretation of the immediately preceding verses, which I trust you will find a complete confirmation of what I have been setting before you. That's why I have adopted this method. We've got to let the apostle state his case fully. And he doesn't merely say it once, you see, that's the glory of him. He keeps on repeating it and putting it in a slightly different manner. But he always sums it up at the end. And so we shall have light thrown upon the meaning of all Israel in verse 26, as I suggested last week and the week before. Well, very well. What does he say here? Well, now look at verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election... They are beloved for the Father's sake. Now, you notice these authorized translators. They start off by saying, as concerning. Then later they say, as touching. Actually, the apostle used the same word in both instances. Uh, I think they may be justified in varying the expression, but really, uh, there is no difference at all. Both of them mean, as regards, or if you like, according to. Now, you notice that he's got a, a contrast here. He's looking at somebody, a body of people, and he says, uh, as regards the gospel, one thing is true of them, but as regards the election, something else is true. Now, let's see exactly what he's saying. Let me give you a literal translation of this verse, just word by word. On the one hand, according to the gospel, enemies because of you. On the other, according to the election, beloved, because of the fathers. Now that is a literal translation of this verse. And it's good we should have that in our minds. On the one hand, according to the gospel, enemies because of you. On the other, according to the election, beloved, because of the fathers. Now, this expression, enemies, is uh, obviously very important here. And it's important that we should be clear as to what he's saying about these people to whom he is referring. Um, he doesn't say that they are enemies. What he says is that they are regarded as enemies. It's passive. It isn't that they 
are acting as enemies. Actually, they are, but that isn't what he's saying. He is saying that they are being regarded as enemies. They are being treated as enemies. Now, we must say that because uh, the parallelism of the verse demands it. About the same people, he says, that they are beloved. He doesn't mean that they are loving, but that they are regarded as beloved for the Father's sake. It's birth. It's passive in the birth instances. Now, this is a vital point because, as we shall see when we come especially to verse 32, it is a very essential link in this great doctrine that the Apostle is laying down in verse 32. So what he is saying is that they are being regarded as and being treated as enemies. Very well. What is the meaning? Now, I'm reading here from the Revised Version, and they supply the words, they are. You noticed in the literal translation it wasn't there. Here I read as concerning the Gospel, they are enemies. In the literal, on the one hand, according to the Gospel, enemies. But the authorized translators are very right here and very wise. They supply, they are regarded as enemies. And again, they supply it later on. But as touching the election, they are regarded as beloved for the Father's sake. Now, I'll have to ask in the question, they ask the question in a moment, who they are. Who are these people to whom he is referring? That's the question. That's the question that's been before us all along, as to who these people are. Who is he referring to? Well, now, let's see what he says about them first. That will help us to see who they are. What he says about them is this. that two things are true of these people at one and the same time. He says, according to the gospel order, as it has developed, what I mean by that is the New Testament system, if you like. It is the gospel order. Uh, Christ, the risen Lord, sent out uh, these chosen representatives, apostles, to preach the gospel. This is the gospel order. We are here in the realm of the gospel order, the realm of the church. And what he says is that according to this gospel order, or from the standpoint, if you prefer it, of the preaching of the gospel, they are treated and regarded as enemies. Why? Well, he says they are being treated and regarded as enemies for your sakes, or as the literal translation puts it, because of you. Now, that's the first part of this statement. In this gospel dispensation, that's the condition in which the apostle is writing. It's the dispensation of the preaching of the gospel. Now, look at from this standpoint, says the apostle, they are being regarded as enemies, and that is so for your sakes, for your benefit, because of you, and what's going to accrue to you. And uh, when he says you, uh, I don't think anybody will disagree with this. In fact, we can prove to you that this is undoubtedly a reference to the Gentiles. I'll give you my evidence for that in a moment. Well, what he says is that these people now, in this gospel order, are being regarded as enemies for the sake of the Gentiles. But then that doesn't finish the statement. This is true of them because they have rejected 
our Lord himself, and they've rejected his message and his gospel. They have uh, rejected the preaching of the apostles. Their whole attitude towards the Lord himself and his followers and the message has been one of opposition. And because of that, God regards them as enemies. But that doesn't exhaust it. There is this further statement that the reason why God is regarding them like this as enemies in this gospel era is for the sake of the Gentiles, that they might derive benefit from that fact. Now, this is nothing new for us, is it? That's why I told you at the beginning that in this statement, the apostle is summing up what he's already told us. Where did he tell us that before? Well, he's told us that already in verse 11. Listen, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. I'm going to stop there for the time being. That is the statement that's being repeated here. And that is why I say that this is a reference to the Jews. They are regarded as enemies for the benefit of the Gentiles. He's already said it in verse 11. But then, of course, he's repeated it in verse 12. Now, he says, if the fall of them, that's to say the Jews as a nation, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, same thing. He says, their fall has uh, turned out to be the riches of the world, and this diminishing of them. You remember we dealt with the meaning of those words. The diminishing of them means the riches of the Gentiles. How much more are their fullness? Now, so here you see, he, he's really just repeating that. He's summing it all up again. And he's doing this in order to throw light on what he's been saying in his great prophecy in verses 25 and the first part of verse 26. This is exposition of the prophecy that he's just given. He says this, if you want to understand this present state of affairs, in which you find the bulk of the Jewish nation outside the church, and only a very little remnant according to the election of grace inside, but the church consisting mainly of Gentiles, you, the you to whom he's referring, he says this is the explanation of it that God has been regarding them now as enemies. And he has used that method to bring you Gentiles in and to bring you under the great blessings and riches of the Christian salvation. And again he says it in verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? They've been cast away. They've been regarded as enemies. And the object of that has been the reconciling of the world. The world meaning the Gentiles, the ethnic nations, all those who are not Jews. Very well. Now then, there is the first part of this tremendous statement. As regards the gospel economy, as regards the present state of affairs in which the gospel is being preached in this manner, they are being regarded as enemies in order that you Gentiles might come in. But wait a minute, he says, don't jump to conclusions. 
You see, he's had to warn these Gentiles. They were ready to jump to conclusions all along. You remember how he dealt with that in verses 16 and forward? He said, um, don't you boast, he says, boast not against the branches. Don't jump to conclusions either about them or about yourselves. Wait a minute and now he's saying it again and summing it all up. He says, right, that's the position as regards the gospel order. But there's another point. And here it is. According to the election, looked at from the standpoint of election, these same people, who are now regarded as enemies, are also at the same time beloved for the Father's sakes. Now, here you see he really is letting us into the mystery. What does he mean here by election? Well, of course, if you uh, have that kind of mechanical mind which uh, uses a concordance as if you've got a ready reckoner in your hand, you rush straight to the fifth verse and say, there it is, that's the meaning of election. He uses the same word in verse 5. Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. But it isn't the same thing at all, and it cannot be uh, for this reason. That uh, the election according to the, the remnant according to the election of grace have never been regarded as enemies. But these people he's talking about are now being regarded as enemies. These who are beloved for the Father's sakes are at the same time now being regarded as enemies. And that patently isn't true of the remnant according to the election of grace because they, like the Apostle Paul, are in the Christian church and they're receiving all the great and rich blessings. No, no. What election stands for here is the principle of election. Look, you see, there's a parallel here. Election is over and against gospel. Looked at in terms of the preaching of the gospel at the present time, they're regarded as enemies. Ah, yes, but there's another way of looking at these people. Looked at in terms of God's eternal election and God's great eternal purpose of election. These people about whom he's speaking are beloved for the Father's sakes. Very well then. Now here is a tremendous statement. It's said about exactly the same people. You've got two ways of looking then at the Jews. And this is as true tonight as it was when the Apostle wrote this 1900 years ago and more. You can say this about the Jewish race and nation tonight exactly as he said it then. Looked at from the standpoint of the Christian church and the preaching of the gospel, they are still outside, they are still cast away, they are still enemies, regarded as enemies. But that isn't the end of the story. God also looks at them from the standpoint of his own eternal election, his great principle of election. And there, says the apostle, they are regarded as beloved. Why? Well, not because of themselves, but for the sake of the fathers. You see the perfect parallel in the two sides of this statement. Looked at from the standpoint of the preaching of the gospel. One, two, enemies. Why? For your sake. Three. On the other side, looked at from the standpoint of election. One, beloved. Two. Why? For your sakes. For the sake of the fathers. Three. Now then, you see, he's got a perfect parallel in the two parts of the statement. But what does he mean by this, for the Father's sakes? 
Well, again, you see, he's not saying anything new. He's already told us this. And he has told us this particularly in verse 16. That's why I made such a point at the beginning of saying that he's summing it all up here. He is. He is gathering up all his arguments. Now, in verse 16, he put it like this. For if the first fruit be holy, so that the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And we saw that the reference to the first fruit and to the root is a reference to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's out of these, the patriarchs, the fathers, that the Jewish race has come, the children of Israel. God chose them, and, and uh, that out of them he should produce his people, the people of God. They are the fathers. And he's already used that very argument. He says, that, no, no, you mustn't jump to the conclusion that they've been thrown out forever. No, no. This is the argument. If the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. If the root be holy, so are the branches. Now, he puts it here in a different way. He says, after all, they have come out of the fathers. And the fathers were beloved and are still beloved. Therefore, they are still, from this standpoint, being regarded as beloved. So, there's no new thought here, but it is another statement of their principle. Of course, he'd already said the same thing in chapter 9, in uh, verses 4 and 5. Either, you remember, was expressing his great... Uh, heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart. Why? For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, from for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Then listen, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. The Father. He doesn't forget this. He cannot forget this. And no one must forget this because the fathers were the chosen of God. He's not pandering to Jewish nationalism. That's not his argument at all. He's looking at it in terms of God's revelation. And the fathers were chosen by God. It's God who set them there as the root and as the first fruits, as it were, of this race and nation. Very well. Now there then is a tremendously important statement in verse 28. And it is written in order to explain what he has just been saying. Now he says, I put my great prophecy before you. And I want you to understand it. And this is what I'm really saying. You are perplexed about their present position and you're drawing wrong conclusions. And they're ignorant of their true position. I have told you what's going to happen to them. And I'm now telling you why it's going to happen to them. They are only being regarded as enemies temporarily. Blindness in part, for a time being, temporary blindness. This isn't permanent. There is another principle operating. Behind that, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Very well. Now there then is a very important statement. But let's go on. Uh, he, in verse 29, uh, now tells us why this is true about them. Why it is true that God regards them temporarily as enemies, but still, from the standpoint of election, and the fathers still loves them and regards them as beloved. I'm talking, of course, not about individuals. I am talking about the Jewish race as a whole. Now then, here is the explanation of why God does this. 
And here is a great general principle, of course. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. You see, the whole character of God is involved in this matter. That is why the Apostle has written these three chapters. This is what I described it at the beginning of chapter 9 as being a great theodicy. It is a kind of defense of God and a justification of God's ways to man. The apostle has to do this because he seems to say at the beginning of chapter 9, it's no use talking about the certainty of God's promises. Doesn't the whole race of the Jews prove that this isn't true? So now he's got to demonstrate this. And here he is at last winding up the great argument. He says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That is an absolute. It must be an absolute, because God is God. Now, there's just one point with regard to this uh, expression, without repentance. In a sense, it conveys the meaning, and in another sense, it doesn't. It would be better to translate it as without regret. The gifts and calling of God are without regret. Uh, I say that simply because the apostle actually used a different word there from the word that is normally used for repentance. It means without being sorry afterwards. Of course, in the end, that comes to uh, repentance. If you're sorry for something you've said or done, well, you'll do your best to undo it. In other words, you'll change your mind with respect to it. And so, in a sense, the authorized translators were justified in translating it by without repentance. But it actually means without regret. Now, let me show you the shade of meaning, uh, the difference in the shade of meaning uh, which is conveyed here. You'll find it if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, where the apostle is dealing with the whole question of repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. There he says that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Now, that translated as not to be repented of, is exactly the same word as is used here in this 29th verse of Romans 11, where it says that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The gifts and calling of God are not to be repented of, not to be regretted, in other words. Never afterwards will God feel sorry with respect to them. But there in that interesting statement in 2 Corinthians 7.10, you've got the two words. You've got the word repentance, godly sorrow worketh repentance. That's repentance. To salvation, not to be repented of. This repentance you'll never regret afterwards. And that's very different, of course, from the sorrow of the world which worketh death, where there is a great element of regret. Now, what does he mean by the gifts and calling of God? Well, there's no difficulty about the gifts. I've already read to you Romans 9, 4, and 5. There you've got a perfect summary of what is meant by the gifts. Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Now, there is a perfect summary of God's great gifts to the children of Israel. 
You get them all, of course, described in detail in the Old Testament. This is one of the most perfect summaries of all that God gave to the children of Israel right through that whole dispensation. And that's what he's referring to here. Again, nothing new, you see. He's just reminding. The moment he takes up this whole question of the Jews at the beginning of chapter 9, he's very careful to remind them of who they are and of the gifts of God to them. There's a great foundation. But now it's in the coping stone as well. It runs right through the whole thing. And if you don't understand these great gifts that God has given to these people, well, you don't understand the entire argument of these chapters, and you don't understand God's great purpose of salvation. That's the gifts. What's the calling? Well, the calling really explains itself. It means they're calling to be his people. You get this term used constantly in the Old Testament. From Egypt have I called my servant. And the children of Israel, God's people, are referred to as the people whom he has chosen, the people whom he has called. This is the great word, and we've seen it so often in this mighty epistle, in which God deals, in which God describes through his servants, the people of God. Well, not the people, says Peter, but are now the people of God. He hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, you're calling, brethren, says the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. How oh, that not many wise men after the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty are called. It's calling. We're all Christians because we've been called. And the people of God are the people of God because God has called them. This is the efficacious call. It is the irresistible call. It is because of this call that anybody is a Christian. God calls his people out of darkness into his most marvelous light. Now, the gifts and call or calling of God are without any regrets. And this is because God is God. God's purpose is an eternal purpose. It's never a temporary one. It's always an eternal purpose. There are temporary aspects to it. But the great purpose itself, he says, the gifts and calling of God, these are never regretted. He never changes his mind about this. He never regrets what he's done. What God has decided, God has decided, and God has and will carry through certainly. There can be no change here. That's the explanation, says the apostle, of this whole problem of the Jew in the matter of salvation. And if you don't understand this, he says, well, you'll remain of necessity in, in the darkness. You've got to look at these things in two ways, the temporary and the ultimate. Temporarily, they are regarded as enemies. Oh, but in the eternal, in the matter of election, in the matter of God's purpose, their beloved, God's purpose was always this, and it can't change. He has no regrets about it. This is what he decided with the fathers, and he made those lavish promises to them, and this must be fulfilled. That's what he's saying. He's not only expounding and, and opening out, as it were, what he's given in his prophecy, but he's giving us the great reason why this of necessity must be the case. The gifts and calling of God are always without any regret whatsoever. Because God is God. Very well. Now then, there is the statement. And we are therefore in a position once more to ask the question, to whom 
does all this refer? Who's he talking about? I've reminded you that the authorized translators have uh, supplied the words, they are. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies. Uh, But as touching the election, they are beloved. Who are they? Who's he speaking about? Well, the answer to that question, I think, should now be quite clear to us, in view of the statements that he's been making, both in the prophecy itself and in these explanations that he's been given of the prophecy and why God works in this way. And I think you all must agree that he is referring to the Israel that he's mentioned in verses 25 and 26. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. And all that we've been looking at tonight is referring to these people, the Israel, this Israel, that is now suffering from this temporary hardness and blindness, this Israel, that is going to be saved. That's, I think nobody can dispute this. These verses are referring to those same people, the Israel, referred to in verses 25 and 26. Well now, is it not now quite clear to all that this cannot possibly be a reference to the total number of the elect among the Jews and the Gentiles? Why can't it be then, as I said on previous weeks, Well, it can't be the elect amongst the Jews and the Gentiles because they are not regarded as enemies in the gospel order of things. They are in the church. They are the saved. But the apostle is dealing here with those who for the time being are regarded as enemies. That cannot be said about the elect and about the saved. Not at all. These who are regarded as enemies are being contrasted with those who are saved, the Gentiles and the remnant according to the election of grace that is already in the church. So that it cannot possibly be said that the Israel in verses 25 and 26 is simply the aggregate of the elect amongst both Jews and Gentiles, as is taught by Calvin and the others to whom uh, we referred a fortnight ago. But in the same way, this cannot be a reference either to the total number of the saved Jews only throughout the centuries. Again, for this same reason, that the Jews who had been saved up until this point were certainly not regarded as enemies. The apostle is one of them. They're in the church. And all the others were in the same position. There's no contrast there. But the people he's talking about are those who are now regarded as enemies, but who nevertheless are still beloved for the Father's sakes. But those Jews who already believed are not regarded as as enemies at all, because they're already in the church and are coming into the church. Very well, then, I say we are left with the same conclusion that we came to before, that this can only be a reference to Israel regarded as a whole, Israel regarded as a nation. This has been the theme of the whole chapter. What the Apostle has told us about them time and time again is this, that they haven't fallen away finally, but they've only stumbled temporarily. Now, the whole argument is about 
the bulk of the nation of the Jews as over against the Gentiles with reference to the church. For the time being, he says, the Jews have stumbled. They've been cut out of their own olive tree to which they belonged by nature. And here he says they're actually being regarded as enemies. Surely this is obvious. Well then, let me anticipate. In verses 30 and 31, he makes this again much more certain. Listen. For as you, referring to the Gentiles, in time past have not believed God, but now have obtained mercy through their unbelief, That's to say the unbelief of the Jews who rejected their own Messiah and crucified him and reviled and persecuted his apostles and would have nothing to do with the gospel. You see, the same contest is carried on. Even even so have these also now not believed in order that through your mercy, the mercy is shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. However, we shall come to that again in greater detail. But you see, this is what he's saying. The Jews regarded as a whole, as a as a race, and as a nation of people, they are still from the standpoint of the gospel, looked at from the standpoint of the church and the preaching of the gospel, even until this night, I say again, they are regarded as enemies. They're in this condition of blindness or of hardness of heart still. But they are still beloved because of the fathers. God's promises to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob still hold and will ultimately be shown to hold. And if it isn't shown to hold, well then the apostles' argument collapses. Look at these great and rich promises to these people in the Old Testament. Can you say that they have been fulfilled hitherto in the Christian church? You cannot. The bulk of this race is outside the church. The apostle says God is going to make it manifest and shown and known to the whole world that they are beloved because of the fathers. They are still his people. They are the natural branches of the olive tree and they will be brought back again. He's already told us that God is able to do so in verse 23 and in other statements. Very well then. Here is the great argument of the whole chapter, that these promises of God remain and are sure. The blindness is only in part. You see, he started off the beginning of the chapter by saying this. I say then, he's putting his question, has God cast away his people? God forbid For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God hath not cast away, in the final sense, his people whom he foreknew. You see, that's the thing he's setting out to prove. He starts with it, here he's ending with it, proving that this is still going to be the case. And as he has demonstrated to us in his scriptural quotations, and particularly these in twenty-six, second half of 26 and verse 27, What God did with them so many times in the Old Testament, he's still doing. You see, God cast away his people to Babylon. He threw them out, raised an enemy, and they were carried away. That's God's way of throwing them out. And the Chaldeans believed that the Jews were finished, and the Jews, many of them, believed the same thing. 
God was displeased with them. He regarded them as enemies. He raised an enemy against them to destroy them and conquer them and carry them away. They appear to be nothing but enemies. But you know, even while he was doing that to them, they were still beloved because of the fathers and he brought them back. The story hadn't finished. They were restored to the land and to the city of Jerusalem and another temple was built. Now, that's that's been God's way of dealing with these people. You could think sometimes as you read your Old Testament that he'd finally finished with them. Never. And the Apostle is saying that the same is still true. That though for the time being, see it's the same argument, blindness in part, temporary blindness, for the time being, as regards looked at from the standpoint of the gospel economy, this present phase, they are being regarded and treated as enemies. And they have, of course. Their city was sacked and destroyed in A.D. 70. They were scattered abroad amongst the nations. And God did that. That's why I read to you at the beginning that portion in Matthew 23. Now God said that upon this generation shall come all these things that have been piling up for this nation ever since the days of Zacharias, the, the son of Zacharias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. That's the final casting out of them. They're being regarded as enemies, and they were. But it isn't the end of the story. Looked at, judged from, the standpoint of God's eternal principle of election, starting with the fathers and the promises and the calling of the fathers and all the gifts. Don't imagine this is the end of the story. For that reason, because the gifts and calling of God are without any regrets afterward, what God has promised to the fathers is going to be fulfilled is going to be carried out. All Israel shall be saved. And this will be such a tremendous thing that when it happens, this is all we can say about it. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Very well, we leave it at that for this evening and work out the remainder of this explanation and argument, God willing, Next Friday night. O oh Lord our God, we come to thee again and offer up our adoring praise and thanksgiving at the marvel and the wonder of thy ways. O oh God, open our eyes to these things. Take from us our smallness of understanding and still more, O oh God, our smallness of outlook. Forgive us for our tendency to set our limits upon the greatness of thy plan and purpose. Oh, give us understanding. We do indeed thank thee for the glory of this message. We pray thee that thou wouldst lift us up into it, that we may rejoice in it with a joy unspeakable and full of glory.
Grant us thy blessing, O Lord, as we part from one another, and follow us with thy blessing to our homes in all our ways, that we may ever live to the praise of the glory of thy grace. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and evermore. Amen.